Welcome to Carrying Wayward, a supernatural podcast for fans who aren't ready to let go and newcomers to the series who are ready to jump in. I'm Drew Shulman. And I'm Marie Figuru. In this episode, we're diving into Supernatural Season 7, Episode 12, Time After Time. Let's get this show on the road. We have a very, very big reminder that next week on December 16th from 1 to 4 p.m. Eastern, Drew and I are going to be live streaming a festive baking competition between the two of us called Baking for the Archives, where you and I, Drew, are going to be baking and decorating some festive cupcakes live on YouTube. And we'll be fundraising for the archives which is one of the biggest queer archives in the world. And we want to help them in their goal to help fight against historical queer erasure. We want to raise $500 over those three hours. And you get to vote on the winner of the competition. And the winner is going to be getting the honor of being the winner, right? And the loser, well, the loser is going to have to record a dramatic reading of a supernatural scene. And anyone who donates will get to vote on what that scene will be. So there are definitely some little perks that come with donating during the fundraiser. So make sure to go check out all the details at carryingwayward.com and subscribe to our YouTube channel to make sure that you don't miss the beginning of this. And we may have some special guests on the roster that you're going to not want to miss. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. This week, we also want to shout out several large angry birds and Nats162 for the lovely reviews that they left us on Apple Podcast. Honestly, thank you so, so very much. Okay, so I have to start this episode by saying that there is a controversy about the title. There is? Yes, absolutely. Because depending on where you look, the title is either Time After Time or Time After Time After Time. That's so bizarre. Didn't we have an issue recently, too, with um, season seven, Time for a Wedding? So I know that on Apple TV, it's time after time after time. But I also know that on the wiki, it's time after time. And wherever I was looking, whether it was IMDb, the two different wikis that we have for Supernatural, it was all time after time. And then we did the ultimate test, which was to check the DVDs. And somebody in our server was like, it's time after time after time. And so now it's like, but the wiki is never wrong. <laughs> I would not be shocked if it's a mistake on the DVD, like when it was being printed or transcribed. And then it just got carried over. Like, I'd be curious if this, I, I didn't see this in the server. Did they check like the physical DVD or do they actually load the DVD into the player and like pull up the menu? No, we looked at the, at the physical DVD. Oh, I'm, I'm now we, the rabbit hole gets deeper. I know we'll have to go double check that uh, once once we're done with this uh, recording. And I do have to take this little moment to talk about, you know, time after time being like the amazing, classic, iconic song. And if you haven't by now, you know that Monster of the Week is now doing an X-Files podcast. And with every season of Monster of the Week at one point, they used to come out with a parody song, basically, that would work with uh, the season that was going on. And for The X-File, they did Time After Time as File After File. And honestly, it is just like, I've been singing it to myself all week, frankly. 
this is news to me. You're telling me I have to go binge the two of them doing parody songs for the X-Files, and then I'm assuming this means also a Supernatural one and probably one for Merlin? There is hunks of summer. Oh my god. (laughs) That was my favorite before File After File. I will be doing some deep dive listening after this episode. Well, speaking of this episode and time after time, as everybody can tell, we are kind of like stretching our time right now. (laughs) How did you feel about the episode? I thought this was a really fun episode. Like genuinely, it was just like non-consequential, silly, and fun. I, again, we watched this one live, so I had gone into it, my only logic being the connection to the obvious song. Did not expect a time travel episode, which has its flaws in being time travel shenanigans. It was a fun, very cool, and good episode. That's all there is to it. It's one of those episodes where I'm like, I can't think about it too much. Because I just can't. But it's definitely very entertaining, very fun. Uh, and it was kind of needed after, you know, the few episodes that we've had, I find. Yeah, it was a well-deserved break. All right, are we ready for the recap? Get me down. Three, two, one, tick-tock, tick-tock. We have a weird, like, let's start with, like, the middle of the scene and then rewind time to show us what happened prior to this. But essentially what happens is Sam and Dean are hunting a thing And they get a weird stoner dude who's like, I saw this red light. And they go hunting after it. They find the red light. They figure out it's some dude who might be time traveling or might be like unaging. Dean tackles him mid vampiring someone's energies and ends up back in the 1940s and partners up with Elliot Ness and goes after this thing. It turns out he's a hunter also. And he has to fight it in the past while Sam and Jody in the present are like working on it. And there's kind of a cool like time travel conversation going on with Dean leaving notes for Sam in the future and ultimately it's a non-consequential episode where Dean gets a really fun time of being out of time and out of sync again like he was in the old west but I think even better this time and Sam has to pull him back and save the day and they get a really ominous ending about ooze uh time I wonder if you would have thought that that ending was as ominous as it was if we hadn't stressed it so much I think it was ominous in the sense that like One, I feel like we very rarely get a monster of the week dying where they draw it out so much. Like the only other one I can really think of recently, uh, the the mother from uh, Purgatory. Why am I blanking on her name? Eve. Eve. Thank you. Wow. How did I forget Eve? Um, Like her death, like she dies and then there's like a few moments of like letting it drag on so she can give a final message. So it's kind of rare when a creature gets to do that. So... I tend to go into those with a feeling of like, oh, this is something. And then for it to be one that can see the future and being your future is full of ooze, like. Yeah, that doesn't take a genius but two and two together. And it was a really good death. This episode was written by Robbie Thompson, directed by Phil Scritchiat. And it originally aired on January 13th, 2012. Good pair. Good episode. I find this episode to be pretty strange for the long game because like 99.9% of it has like no bearing whatsoever on the rest of the season or the series, except for again, like that one piece of like really weird foreshadowing at the end. Yeah. Like I feel like we've had episodes do this before where it's like, let's do an episode that is ostensibly a bottle episode, but like shoehorn in a message at the end. And this time it's actually done well like 
it makes sense that a creature that's been traveling through time and deals with the future and the past would have that information and that would ultimately want to spook them by giving it to them. Like, it doesn't feel like it was jammed in or forced. Jody is back. Uh, she brings Sam and Dean a case. Uh, now that Bobby's gone, she reaches out to them directly, which is something that we're starting to see, right, with Chrissy last episode and now Jody. Yeah, true. They don't have their uh, they don't have their Zordon anymore. They need they need to be the direct uh, source. We get another instance of the brothers playing rock paper scissors and Sam winning again. <laughs> uh, and not even like winning, but like winning, and then Dean like grumbling about it because like it's a stupid game. Why does paper beat rock? I love how sassy Sam is in this episode because he gets, you know, they like get in position, right? To like play rock, paper, scissors. And Sam like looks at his hand and then looks up at Dean and just like gets this really tiny corner smile. And I'm like, dude. <laughs> it has such strong sibling energy. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Speaking of Sassy Sam, we also get his iconic line, are you going to look at some more anime or are you strictly into dick now? Miraculously beautiful execution of that line. And I'm glad that it exists for so many reasons. But I had a moment where I was like, oh no, she put the line in wrong. I had to go look it up again. Um, no, you were right. The line is right. But there's like the same line basically comes up earlier in the episode without like the the dick joke in it uh sam makes a line about like are you watching uh, cartoon smut again and dean goes it's anime it's an art form and i got i had the two lines misconstrued because it basically happens twice and they're both beautiful moments uh sam is impressed with dean for getting into the local surveillance camera footage so quickly and easily and we find out that it was frank who taught him how to do this dean i don't think realized it until Sam showed a level of like jealousy slash impressiveness in him where he's like oh am I being the tech savvy one do I know computers now oh no he knew what he was doing he knew what he was doing it was of course he did it was right after the dick line of course he was gonna do something like this it's a power play <laughs> I don't know. I, there's a there's a little bit of an energy of like the let me just do this because I know how to, and then the oh you're jealous that I can do this and you can't. Now I can lord it over you. We get a rare throwaway shot of Sam eating something other than a salad. Whether this was realistically them just not paying attention and not thinking about it and not making a big deal, but to me this shows that like maybe he's relaxing a bit. He's more comfortable with his own body and image. That he's okay having a cheat day here and there. It could also be, you know, a veggie burger, right? Or a sandwich that we don't know. A good veggie burger over a boring salad. I'm, I'm, on, I'm on board with that being a, a cheat day or an upgrade still. Dean is sent back to 1944 where he meets Prohibition agent and apparently hunter Elliot Ness. Uh, so for those of you who might not know, because Drew and I did not know, uh, Elliot Ness is the one who got Al Capone on tax evasion and he wrote a memoir called The Untouchables, which was then later made into a movie starring Kevin Cosner, Andy Garcia, Robert De Niro, and Sean Connery. <laughs> uh, that's a really good Connery. <laughs> <laughs> Like, I, I will never attempt a Sean Connery. That is a very unique accent I can never hit. I was honestly more attempting Jensen Ackles trying to say Sean Connery. That's that's more where I was going personally. I, I think you were I think you were better at it than Jensen Ackles was. <laughs> oh my god. 
I love bringing in historical characters. I love kind of the like, I don't want to say like retconning history, but like basically getting to like see the history that is not in the books because it was secretive like this. I have a whole fan fiction about uh, Marie Antoinette being a vampire slayer. Long story. I kind of love it. We get a quick clip of Dean fully checking out a U.S. Army soldier walking down the street. Uh, this episode giveth, really. Clearly, Sam was right when he talked about his uh, interest in what he was looking up online. This episode also happens to take place on November 5th, 1944. November 5th being like a really important date in some parts of the Supernatural fandom. Like, if I, I think I know what November 5th is. I'm fairly certain I know what it is, but I've never, like, looked into it or confirmed it. So, like, I get it enough to know, like, ooh, that's a touchy subject. Uh, we get a call back to 315, weirdly called Time is on My Side, where Bobby tells Dean to bring Johnny Walker Blue to Rufus. And here we see that Rufus had sent a bottle to Bobby, presumably as part of losing a bet. Which, again, I love, like, little bits of, like, we can still build the Bobby and Rufus mythos despite losing both of them. Like, I imagine they're both sitting up in heaven arguing about some shit as we watch this episode. Dean says that if he stays stuck in 1944, he's going to head over to Europe and punch Hitler in the neck. Drew, believe it or not, this is actually important to remember for a future episode. Oh, my God. There are so many reasons why that might be a thing. Uh, for the people who are a little more diverse in their fandoms and as part of the whole Super Hulog thing, you know I get on board with uh, main characters punching Hitler. We get the line, you want to know your future, I know your future. It's covered in thick black ooze. Uh, Andrew, you're free to ask me any questions about this. Just know that I may or may not answer. <laughs> uh, but I, I just need to mention just how unhinged it is that we're getting this line at this point in the series because like it's it foreshadows something in this season but not only um and not only once but twice <laughs> i mean i've been talking about the importance of black ooze since like season two so it's like this is a lot right like this is a lot so again like peek behind the shadow there was kind of a lot of like Ooh, we're doing the live watch this week, time after time. There's a really, like, Black Ooze is super important in this episode. So I was very, like, a Leviathan episode. Uh, and then was kind of caught off guard when all it was was this very cryptic and dark warning. I mean, really, I say cryptic. It's not really cryptic. It's pretty, like, blunt of a warning. But, like, that is so interesting. Like, I really am on kind of the bus of, like, Leviathans are done after this season. So... If I'm right, then what does Black Ooze come back? And it, or am I wrong? And are Leviathans kind of the big bad for the next several seasons? Like I know. Yes, Drew, we have seven seasons left of Leviathan. <laughs> no, but look, I mean, we can get Levi give us like three more seasons of Leviathans and I then switch quit. over I would to quit. I would quit. I would quit. <laughs> would not do Okay, it. so. Yeah, because again, like again, just again, my understanding of the structure of the show, I am fairly convinced that season seven to season eight, season eight is a, a five to six level change. So I would not imagine them carrying over a big bad or even like a main theme villain. I just find it really, again, unhinged that this episode happens on a November 5th and that there's Black Ooze. I just, I, I cannot. Oh, so now I have to assume that Black Ooze is tied with the end of Cass and the series finale. Great. 
which means, is it tied to Leviathans? Is Black Ooze something else I don't know about? I, oh my god. Oh, no, 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 you know you can't tell me. <laughs> no, it's not that I can't, it's that I'm choosing not to, it's even worse. <laughs> oh, nonetheless, I will accept my fate of not knowing until we get there, and I will, I, I swear, I don't know how we're going to do this, but we're going to have to do some sort of, like, obviously we're going to have to do some sort of, like, look back on the show once we're done, and, like, all the things are like, you didn't realize this, or oh my god, that. And I'm just going to sit here and bang my head into a wall for 30 minutes. Why? <laughs> Our theme this week is time. And this is one of those words that just hasn't changed all that much over time. <laughs> <laughs> like it hasn't changed all that much in terms of what it means. It comes from Old English and it means like well, what it means, it's time. But one thing that I did find interesting is that in English, the word time can be used in multiple ways, in ways that other languages can't. So like, for example, the, there's like the meaning of time as like passing time, which would be translated to French, for example, as temps. Then you have like, oh, remember that one time? So like instance, and that you would translate to French as fois. And then you also have like, what time is it? Which in French would be heure, as in like the specific hour of the day. And I find that this episode uses like all three kinds of time. And I think that it could be cool to like look for them in this episode. Let's hop in right away with Sam, because I feel like we get a kind of like really easy Sam episode here. Uh, his journey kind of continues from last week quite well. He's allowing himself to move on and find healing through the passage of time. And we see it in the way that he reacts to Dean's obsession with Dick. He's trying to kind of not like talk him out of it, but make him realize that like, hey, maybe we do something else for five minutes. Maybe put away the computer and go outside and touch grass. <laughs> Are you saying put away the dick? Is that what's going on? <laughs> I'm going to be insufferable in this episode again. I'm so sorry. I don't know what's wrong with This me. episode calls for it. It's fine. Don't worry. Right. Like the strictly into dick line is still like I have to come back to it because I'm I'm still amazed that this line like actually made it into the episode. Like remember that this is a show where Cass sitting on Dean's bed was too gay just a few seasons ago. Right. Like but this line made it on. And so I don't know, like I guess in a more critical way, maybe this is showing that the show like has lived through a passage of time between like when it started in 2005 and now, which would be 2012 and like what was and wasn't acceptable to imply about Dean. Yeah. I kind of, I, I like that. It's a, it's an interesting way to think of it like that. We've just, we've moved on enough that it's like they've loosened their grip a bit. It seems like that anyway, with this line, um, I guess in a more narrative sense, I think it does show that time has passed between, like, since 2005, at least, because I'm not sure that Sam would have felt comfortable saying this to Dean back then. Like, think about 211 playthings when Dean gets, like, really distressed that people think that he's gay. So basically, Sam, like, making this comment and making the face that he makes while making the comment also, I think really shows that time has passed and, like, somehow because of something or someone things have changed and like Dean is more comfortable and more secure with his sexuality. Which by extension gives Sam the ability to 
I don't want to say joke about it, but like be a little more coy about it and like, you know, bring it up in light ways where like, it's almost like that gentle ribbing where it's like, we don't have to talk about it, but I can kind of give that little like nudge in the ribs as I make a comment, knowing that we're both on the same team uh, in this sense of like, we both know and we're okay with it. Again, Sam kind of is shelved this episode. He has what I would say is basically his, his amazing few lines with Dean what I want to get to now with Jody and then his saving Dean at the end, which really is just a whole other thing. His time with Jody, I feel is the most important moment of growth and healing he's had since this whole thing's happened. You know, he's able to connect with someone I would say older and more wise than himself who treats Bobby's passing in a way that makes it seem that she's likely lost friends like this before. This isn't the first time she's suffering through this level of loss, which while Sam and Dean are used to loss, this is kind of the most powerful loss they've had ever. And I'm including John in this. I feel like this affects them a lot more. You know, she normalizes the situation for Sam and gives him the assurance that, like, while it hurts now, it will get easier with time. Yeah, I agree with that. I mean, I'm going to talk more about Sam and Jody in critical time, but, like, you're so right. Like, we're... We talked last week about how like grief needs community and we're we're seeing that in this moment, right? Like Sam and Jody are like able to grieve Bobby together and Sam actually gets to talk about it, which is something that he needs. And, and we know that Dean can't give him or at least like he can't give him when Sam needs it. Like I don't think both from like a like, un- like in-universe story time and a critical perspective, I don't think Jody is going to replace Bobby in any way, shape, or form. I don't think that's what they're intending. I don't think that's what they're going to do. I don't think they ever. I don't think. I don't feel like it was ever the plan. But in this moment, she kind of fills the Bobby role for Sam in just being a like someone to lean on, someone who he can connect with momentarily and share in like a shared feeling. And I just think that is so important for him and just shows so much growth in Sam as a character overall and in this moment. Yeah, it's the ability to create relationships, right? To form relationships with others. One thing I do want to talk about is the letter that Dean writes to Sam and that he ends up finding and that's the key to bringing Dean back to the present. And please, I hate time (laughs) travel and this one is particularly stupid. Putting aside that... I found that like this moment kind of spoke to those objects that are like relics of time past, like the bottle of scotch that Jody finds in Rufus's things or in, in um, Bobby's things, I should say. It's like some things really have the power to speak through time or to take us right back in time. And I just think that that was really, really well done because it was very understated. It wasn't like sometimes the show can be a little in your face, but like this was really understated and well done. It was very, like, nuanced and subtle while saying so much without being blunt. The fact that it connects to a previous thing we knew about Rufus and Bobby and Rufus's relationship and just the note, the way it spoke about Bobby is very anthemic of them. Uh, I just genuinely think uh, this, this, this shared moment of Jody and Sam discussing... Bobby and referencing Rufus, I think it's just ultimately one of the like, best scenes of like non 
non-supernatural events the show has given us in a long time. Yeah, yeah, in that more, like, domestic, like, um, human, uh, like, relationship. That's what it is. It's incredibly human in the best way. Yeah, I agree with you. I totally get that. What about Dean? Well, Dean is clearly the star once again this week as he is dealing with our theme in, once again, the most literal sense. I feel like I've said this line several times. He is literally dealing with time by being thrown. Uh, trying to do math here in my head. 40 years in the past? Is that what they say? No, 60 years? I can't do math anymore. It, w- it was the 2010s and he was thrown into the 40s. Uh, maybe 60... Yeah. So that's 60 years on that side and then t- about 12 on that on the other. So let's say 70. <laughs> we're we're queer in doing math. This isn't mixed. You know that. <laughs> <laughs> I have a degree in economics. I'll have you know. <laughs> You're having just as much trouble as I am right now. I know. But yeah, I, I fully agree with you. And I've done stats at a graduate level. <laughs> Anyway, <laughs> I TA'd math in high school because I couldn't deal with the teacher being so bad. Yeah, you're completely right, though. Like, this is again another episode where Dean is being put forth as the protagonist of the story. And uh, in 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 past seasons, I think like they were better at alternating Sam and Dean, whereas now we're really starting to see like Dean heavy storylines. Yeah, like despite this, I'm calling arc, the season six, season seven arc, focusing so much on Sam because he lost his soul. Like even that feels like it was very Dean-centric for so much of it. And now that Sam doesn't really have a story happening like he did in seasons four and five with the demon blood and the chosen one stuff, uh, it, it the show has gone very heavy on the Dean side. No complaints. I would like some more Sam time, but... I'm still loving these Dean moments. And speaking of wild, I feel like this is a bit of a wild call here, but like Dean, I mean, once he settles into the forties and figures out what he's doing a bit is like, so on board and cool with it. Like the, the switch from like, Oh my God, what's happening to like, yeah, I'm all in. Let's do this is so quick. And I see it as a form of escapism for him. We've seen him indulge in a few things uh since losing Cass but like this is the first time I think we've seen Dean like really happy drug burgers excluded listen I remember a few years back now it must have been like a couple years It's, it's when I was posting a lot on TikTok on our TikTok channel and like uh there was a conversation about how Dean fits in basically everywhere except the hunting world. And I feel like this is taken to an extreme uh, by taking him literally out of his time and into a different time, and, and yet he still fits in immediately. And you're right, he, he really is enjoying himself, like, which again, feels good, especially after the last few episodes. And like thinking back to the last episode, this is literally life-saving for him. You know, to be able to find things to enjoy himself and, like, to feel good. Like, it's what's going to keep him alive longer. That was the whole message of the last episode. 
One thing that we're going to be seeing in terms of keeping Dean alive is that he's learning tips and tricks also from other hunters. Uh, so obviously from Elliot Ness, but also from Frank, who taught him about the surveillance cameras. Let's not talk about the realism of that. Like, that's, again, not the point. Like, both the time travel, the surveillance, like, not the point. But what I do find interesting here uh, about this is that Dean learns from others when Sam isn't around. So like during the time that they spend apart and like, I'm not sure that I really want to read all that much into it, but I think it speaks to like the growth that happens outside of relationships, like l things that you learn with other people that you can then bring into relationships. Yeah. I didn't make that connection too. that. Like Dean does his best learning when Sam's not around. You know what? I can kind of understand that. Like I feel you you become complacent in your situation. So when you are thrown out of your comfort zone, you have to adapt a bit more. And that's when Dean does his best learning is on the job. Yeah. I, I just, it's a very interesting thing to put together that I'll be curious to kind of track the like Dean solo meets other hunters. What will he learn from Garth? What will he learn from Garth? That's a lovely question. Will he learn to hug Maybe. Or partying on, as I've been told happens soon. There is definitely a lot of partying on happening with Garth. So it's often said, and I mean, being cliche here for a moment, using these lines, time heals all wounds. And I think with enough time, Dean and even Sam will be okay. But without some amount of trying, it could take a lot longer than it should. Dean may be coping in different ways. So far, we've drinking, obsessing over revenge, and now escapism in a very literal sense. And while this may help him a bit, ultimately, Dean needs to open up. Otherwise, time will have nothing to heal. He will just be a giant wound, essentially. I actually love that you're bringing this adage into the conversation, because does time really heal all wounds, is my question. Like, I think that healing heals some wounds. And healing happens with time. So that I, that I absolutely agree. But that's one thing that I always sort of question when people are talking about things that happen. Like, oh, it was a really long time ago, right? Like as if just because it happened a long time ago, it can't possibly profoundly be affecting them anymore. So yeah, I think you're totally right when you talk about needing to put in like some amount of trying. I think that that is so important. Because let's think about a physical wound for a second. If it's a paper cut, like it'll very likely fix itself in time, right? But something deeper or more severe, like you actually have to tend to it, like disinfect it, keep it clean, keep it dry, maybe even get some suture points. Like it doesn't, it, it doesn't just happen in time. Like you will heal and that does happen with time, but it's not time that does the actual healing. I, I'm now really bummed that I did not take the time to go look up this adage more that we were going to talk about it like this, because I'm willing to bet it probably has one of those like etymological origins where like it's not being interpreted the way it was initially intended uh, or it has some sort of controversial like where it's actually from. Because I think you're right. I think the idea that time heals all wounds is more that healing happens with time, but there is still the level of you need to put in the effort to allow the healing to happen. If you rely on just time, it won't. 
All right, so time heals all wounds is a proverb that means that grief and sorrow will lessen over time. Emotional pain is relieved as time passes. Though the expression time heals all wounds is often quoted, people who have experienced loss and grief usually dispute the sentiment. Interesting. <laughs> loss of a child or losing a loved one, such as a grandparent, aunt, uncle, sibling, parent, or other family member may leave one depressed, grief-stricken, numb, in despair, and without an appetite. Coping with loss of family members can be emotionally traumatic. The grieving process is painful, especially after the death of, of a child. The bereaved may find it necessary to join a grief support group to mourn and to learn to cope with one's sadness and move through heartbreak into a healing process. This is from Grammarist, by the way. It's not like a medical journal or anything like that. Okay. Though healing a broken heart is possible, the scar is always there. See, that's also important. Anyway, the phrase time heals all wounds may be first attributed to the Greek poet Menander, who lived around 300 BC and said, time is the healer of all necessary evils. Uh, Geoffrey Chaucer's poem, Troilus and Chryside, please, I'm, I don't know how to pronounce any of these words, written in the 13th. <laughs> Uh, 80s contains the phrase as time him hurt a time doth him cure maybe I was wrong maybe it's not the origin per se that we had misconstrued but I think with time we have learned that it is not as true as we once thought it was okay from the top Kick down the door. Check the left flank and chuck holy water at both demons. Step over the tripwire and don't get spooked by the cat again. The next demon will be coming down the stairs in three, two, now. Take one large step back. Let him trip over the cat and fall into the tripwire. That's three down. Um, okay, right, yeah. Sidestep shattering window. Step up onto couch to avoid now electrified puddles. And next to rush in, get zapped, fall into the middle of the room, and jump to the chandelier and swing out the window. Huh, and we're good. Wow, it finally worked. Crossbow bolt to the back. Lung pierced. Fine, I guess we're doing this again. What is this, like the 41st time? Gosh, I really hate time travel. Okay, from the top. I really love that this episode gives some screen time to Sam and Jody. Um, because as the seasons go on, we're going to see that much more screen time is actually given to Dean interacting with people than to Sam. And so like this little glimpse of Sam and Jody becoming friends is really great to me. She called him first. She tries to help him as best as she can, uh, not only with the case, but also with making sure that she, like, he's taking care of himself by like going to sleep, for example. What we're seeing is that Jody is actually befriending Sam, and she befriended Sam first before Dean. I like to cling to that because, like I said, it becomes more and more rare as the seasons go on. I will also remind everybody that even though there's a mention of Jody using her mom voice, Jody is only seven years older than Sam. Like she was born in 76 and he was born in 83. So even though there's like a caring component to the relationship, 
uh, probably because of the way that Jodi is in her life, I'm always really careful about the mom qualifications that the show like repeatedly chooses to use to talk about her. Uh, especially to talk about her relationship to both Sam and Dean. Like, she could very easily be their sister, but certainly not their mother. And we absolutely will see more instances of that, uh, and we'll talk about it more in later seasons. You know what? There's a part of me that was always like, I don't understand how they're, like, framing Jody as, like, a mom character because she seems so young, like, compared to Sam and Dean. But I assumed it was just a case of casting a younger actress to play an older character, but then to actually turn around and be like, no, 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 like in the show canonically, she's only seven years old. That is just like. No, this is literally just the show not really knowing what to do with a woman if she's not a girlfriend or a mother. Yeah, that, you know, again, speaks greatly towards the show's ineptitude with female presenting characters. This week we have a message from Lucien, and before we listen to it, we want to remind you to send us a three-minute voicemail. To respond to anything we discussed today, you can use the recording app on your phone and just email us the recording at carryingwayward at gmail.com. We also want to remind you that Drew and I are going to be answering the question, do you keep a time capsule of mementos for our Roadhouse supporters on our Impala Talk? Stay to the very end of the episode to hear a short clip. Hi, Mary and Drew. I wanted to talk to you a little bit about um, Dean and Sam's respective relationship to the pursuit of the American dream and sort of the class commentary in Supernatural. And I want to preface this with saying that I am very much Australian. So like my perspective and my thoughts on the matter are very much coming from the outside um, looking in. Um, so these are just sort of what I've gleaned um, and about America. Um, so I guess I'll just dive right in because it's quite a bit that I want to talk about. Okay. So Dean and Sam are situated within the show as belonging to different social classes. Dean is the rugged bad boy, blue collar, macho white man. And Sam is the highly educated, social, affluent, intelligent, more conventional one because of the way he presents like Sam is afforded more social mobility than Dean. He's able to blend into normal middle-class America. Sam's characteristics fit the expectations of this class. He's more softly spoken, more composed, more calculating. He engages with middle-class consumerism in a way that Dean doesn't. He has a laptop, a cell phone. His food choices aren't the cheapest thing on the menu. And his clothes are, specifically in the earlier seasons, are more refined, button-up shirts, as opposed to Dean, who actively rejects these commodities. He has Sam has cultural capital that gives him access to spaces like these spaces. And he's also Christian uh, before he becomes disillusioned. Sam is also the protagonist of the story and it's his hero journey, um, though, it is the though it is the lens of Dean's perspective that we watch the narrative through. Sam is allowed upward social mobility because he doesn't carry the trauma of a father's failure to protect his son's innocence, which is sort of explicitly explored in the horror genre through monsters as a metaphor for encroaching societal truths, particularly economic ones. John failed to protect Dean from the monsters. Dean grew up trapped by economic barriers. Sam, on the other hand, due to Dean's intervention as a pseudo-parent, protected him, Sam, um, is thus afforded access to the pursuit of the American dream. 
Sam has his own trauma from childhood, though it manifests differently. Sam is a product of neglect and he struggles with pride, hubris, addiction and a saviour complex, overcompensating for a world that's telling him that he's an abomination and dirty. I would argue that Sam is more similar to John in many ways, whereas Dean is more similar to Mary. To John, Dean is a reminder of John's like own perceived failure at protecting his children's apple pie life. Except Sam and Dean represent best, the best of their respective parents and actively work to break or at least grapple with cycles of abuse and destructive behaviour throughout the show. Dean, on the other hand, loves guns, flannel, classic muscle cars, greasy food, and his behaviour is always being called out by characters like Missouri, Sam and Bobby for his lack of etiquette and social acceptable cues. He can't pass as middle class in any way, and the show actively attempts to position him as a dumb and educated criminal. He fits so easily into the prison system and has no qualms about scamming, lying, or being oppositional to authority. He's poor white trash, basically. Even John showed more physical affection and drive to protect Sam, the good proper boy, over Dean, the soldier and the cannon fodder. Protect Sam, take your brother. Dean was exposed to a real world, to the real world at the age of four. Uh, and Sam didn't even really know what his dad did until the age of nine. And this is like super interesting given contextually in the background of the first five seasons is this post 9-11 America engaged in the Iraqi war where the white underclasses only access to more education and wealth through was through joining the military, fighting wars of the wealthy and cushioning any economic disaster as a disposable labor force on which American capitalism uh, abuses in order to function. Kripke Scoop naturally is about this class and the people, like this class of people and the way the American Gothic and horror is a metaphor for economic suffrage in a country that promises the American dream and fails to deliver for many. The early seasons were founded on this idea of local legends, hunters operating through oral traditions, but also represent the dangerous urban militar with stockpiles of ammunition in their living rooms, exercising their God-given rights uh, and rejecting the homogenous suburbia for American individualism and patriotism. This is the group Dean is allocated. Dean's entire projection of masculinity is constructed from blue-collar stoicism. But like, But just like Dean's masculinity, the show does act to deconstruct and criticise the class system. Dean's masculinity is inextricably linked to his working class social economic status. It is textually and subtextually acknowledged to be a mask, building up his masculinity and tearing it down through jibes from Sam, the amount of times Dean sobs on the phone, uh, how he drinks himself to sleep, Dean begging for his father or God or for help from anyone. A creature literally wearing Dean's face says at some point, I know I'm a freak and sooner or later everyone is going to leave me. So even though Dean identifies as this male blue collar tough guy, the show actively dismantles the notion that this is a good thing. Dean loathes himself. He actively rejects middle America and consumerism, not because he believes those things are bad, but because he doesn't see himself as worthy of it. Like as shown in Bugs and oh my God, I can't believe Bugs is just so foundational, but it really is. <laughs> God help us. Dean says growing up in the burbs, he'd blow his brains out but relish is the shower and the towels and the creature comforts of suburbia. This is because those things are pure and unaffected by the supernatural. Those are the things that hunting serves to protect. And the way the underclasses are in like the same way that the underclasses are exploited to prop up the upper class. In his gin dream, he relishes the white picket fence and stability. It isn't suburbia that would cause him to blow his brains out, but his inability to function within it, as we see very explicitly in season six. Dean hates himself, he hates hunting, and he refuses under all circumstances to indoctrinate the children he adopts along the way into the life. 
However, Sam actively chooses hunting and so doesn't have a problem with that, as we see with Jesse and Adam and the shifter baby. Sam has agency to leave, which means that he's actively choosing to stay, but Dean is trapped, just like John and Mary. He's trapped due to his suicidal ideation and childhood trauma that acutely prevent him from pursuing the American dream and the apple pie life of acquisition and consumerism. How can a person want for something when all they want to do is stop existing? And the harsh reality, as we see later on, is that even if Dean was able to retire hunting, because of his background and trauma, he will never adjust, no matter how much he wants and craves to. This is what we see when he and Lisa are shack up for that year. It is impossible for him... So, of course, he rejects it. And, and I think this is why so much of fandom and to, like, end on a more lighter note, so much headcanons are focused on, like, or post-canon fanfiction is sort of focused on Dean and Cass in this sort of domestic married bliss because it's the one thing that Dean wants that he knows he can't have. <laughs> oh, dear, I just came up with that on the fly. That's terrible. Um, oh, poor canon. Anyway, sorry. Um yeah, so thank you for listening. I tried to keep it really short, um, but I failed. <laughs> um, thank you for your podcast. You guys are wonderful and um, keep going. And I'm so excited that we're at season six because this is, I think, where we really see these ideas coming to light and being shown. So thank you so much. Wow, Lucien, that was so much. I. Thank you for everything that has opened up too many doors in my brain that I don't think we have time to get to all of them, but they are going to be open and rattling for many episodes to come. If I can just pick like one thing that really stuck with me, I wanted to focus on it is that idea that Dean could not exist in that suburban lifestyle. Like he tried it for a year and we all understood that he wasn't loving it and was doing it just to basically appease the people around him, but not for himself. But it's still, despite that, when he doesn't have it, something he strives for, like we've seen this season, his um, cold shower and cold hot pocket speech. I think that is so interesting that there is this level of aspiration of like one day, if I put in the hard work, I will achieve the goal of being able to have a white picket fence and a hot shower and, again, the Bugs connection. God damn, that episode haunts us. The fact that when he does have it, and in this case, I, I would say he's earned it with Lisa, but, like, I feel like he doesn't feel like he's earned it. He feel like he's, like, given up to get there. It, like, spoils it for him almost. And I don't know if there ever is a form of Dean, even if they save the world and him and Cass get to move on with their life, that he could ever just stop and be middle class. I don't think that's what Dean could ever settle with. Yeah, Lucien, thank you so, so much for this lovely voicemail. It's definitely, I mean, you know, it's, again, it's really interesting. I find that we're listening to this in, in this moment of the season because, like, we just brought up bugs, like, not that long ago. That exact scene with the hot shower and, and the suburbia and whatnot. Yeah, there's some really, really amazing observations in in your voicemail. To kind of continue the conversation with Drew, I think 
if I remember correctly, like one of the things that we talked about with him trying to settle down with Lisa, it's that it wasn't really on his terms, right? Like he was doing it in order to do what he thought was the right thing. And so I like, that's just one thing that when people are like, oh, well, see, he tried with Lisa. Like even Bobby, when he says, oh, you tried with Lisa. But the thing is like, maybe trying with Lisa just wasn't the right way to try. And, and again, maybe maybe it's not either or, maybe there's an in-between. And I think that it's just really important, especially for, for people who have suffered trauma, to kind of like, and I'm speaking maybe, maybe I'm projecting a little too much here. So, you know, take it with a grain of salt. Maybe this says more about me than it says about Dean. I don't know. But I think it's important to like, maybe not push us like into specific like, boxes in the sense of like maybe Dean doesn't necessarily want to just live in a house in suburbia like with Ben and Lisa but maybe for him being out of the life looks like a cabin in the woods or maybe it looks like van life yeah van life maybe that's what it looks like I don't know maybe it looks like him alone maybe it looks like him with a partner maybe it looks like him dating I don't know but I think that it's so important to kind of like let people decide what their life is going to look like even if it doesn't necessarily fit exactly what people expect of them you know and I think it's really important for 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 us then to be like to regain a sense of control and not to just do what we think we're supposed to do in order to heal. We talked a lot about healing today. And I think that healing also has to do with regaining control of our lives and to design it the way that we want to see it. But those are my thoughts about that particular topic. There's the box that everyone thinks they're being shoved into or being told this is what you want. And I think, again, I agree with you. I think the trying with Lisa to live a suburban life wasn't the right fit for him. But there is likely a version of certain things. Like I just in a moment had a thought of like, what if he just kept up his life hunting the way he likes and the way he's good at, but had the budget for nice hotels with good showers. That might be all he needs. Just, just upper class hotels to stay in instead of cheap motels. Just the occasional spa day between hunts. Or maybe fewer hunts, right? With a more of a pied-à-terre somewhere else where he's able to to relax a little bit in between those those hunting moments. Like, and that's the thing, I think, like, I, like, went into a relationship at one point, like, 10 years ago now almost. Uh, a little less, but anyway. And I felt immense pressure to make it work because that's what people wanted from me. Like, very Dean and Lisa. Like, very, very Dean and Lisa. And, and neither of us were really happy. And so... You know, when that ended, it felt like a huge, it basically felt like the, like, like life was telling me, you will never be happy. This is not the kind of happiness that you can find. And realistically, that was bullshit. <laughs> it was bullshit. And so that's why I get really, really sensey towns when we talk about Dean, like not being able to adapt because I'm like, it's, he can on his terms. And that might not look like what you and I think it ought to look like. Drew, what's your reflection and call to action this week? When it comes to time, I am really good at rushing into things or procrastinating to the last bloody second. Uh, unfortunately, I was that student in school who was really good at 
getting to school at six in the morning and finishing the assignment for nine and getting tons of praise for my quality of work. Just basically, the cycle continues. Neither of those particularly fit the episode super well this week. I'm just reminding myself a little bit that, you know, maybe I should be a little bit better with my time management, uh, which we discussed recently, surprisingly. Uh, Maybe I need to rethink how I do things and work on my scheduling and my time management skills and be a little less lazy. And you, Mary, what are your calls to action and reflection for this week? I mean, I think that this episode is pretty egregious in like so many ways. So like as much as I do find it incredibly entertaining, I, I find it hard to engage with it like a bit more personally, let's say. But the line that gets me every time, and we talked about that moment a little bit earlier, is, is when Jody finds the, the bottle of alcohol and she says, it's like their life's a big puzzle. You just keep finding pieces of it scattered all over the place. And it makes me feel called to remember that sometimes there are things in our lives that just don't make sense to us until time has passed. Like we need time and space in order to like make it make sense. And of course, it's not going to be true of everything. Some things are truly senseless and there's no, no rhyme or reason to it. But like sometimes we're able to kind of like make sense of those big events in life. You've been listening to Carrying Wayward, a supernatural podcast produced by Rochelle Castellano, hosted by Drew Shulman and myself, Marie Figuru. Thank you to everyone supporting us on Coffee or Patreon, and an extra thank you to our Bunker supporters, L, Jeremiah Thomas, and Simone. This week, we'd like to thank Lucien for his message. You can go to carryingwayward.com for the links to our merch store and all of our socials. If you'd like to support us, you can become a patron or a coffee subscriber. You can also leave us a rating on Spotify and a review on Apple Podcasts. Carry on our wayward friends. I will give you something he sent me that I think is emblematic of my my ability to keep things, but mostly through my parents. Uh, I was in a phase where there was a lot of like, I wish this toy existed. It doesn't. I will make one. So I have a little Volkswagen Pikachu Pikabug. When Nintendo did the little new beetle with the Pikachu details. So my father helped me put together my own little Pikachu Volkswagen. 